Amen. You can be seated. This story in 2 Kings is generally told from the perspective of Naaman and the commander of the army of Syria. He had a disease called leprosy, which uh, it's, it's not called that anymore today. I, I believe the, the disease is now called Hansen's disease, and it's treatable. It's no longer life-threatening or um, difficult to live with anymore. If you can get the proper medication, you can be cured of this disease. But the people of the day of Naaman and even of the days of Jesus, Jesus was noted for curing lepers in his ministry, uh, people who had suffered with this disease. And, and it's really a tragedy whenever someone received or got notification or kind of uh, suspected that they were, they were contagious or had this disease, they were immediately evicted from their homes, their society. They weren't allowed to live in the city walls. They weren't allowed to enjoy some of the benefits of just being a citizen of a nation, of a country. Oftentimes, the families had to see to it that they were fed and so they would, they would uh, throw food over a wall or a, wherever the, the leper colony was. They would bring food to a certain place and then leave and the lepers would come out and gather the food that was brought to them for their families. They were never allowed to take possessions with them, only the clothes on their back. Their career was over. They had no way to make money. They were beggars for the rest of their life and they had to suffer the effects of this disease alone by themselves. This was the typical law or rule for those who had leprosy in Israel. In fact, if you were a leper in Israel and you walked down the street, you had to announce to everybody that you were unclean and people had to stay away from you. And literally, they would, they would pull out a sword and, and threaten you don't come any closer because they wouldn't want to get the disease themselves. It was fearful. It was terrifying for someone to have leprosy. And so we, we read the story here in 2 Kings of this general, this perhaps a very successful man, but he was a leper. So he had to do everything he did from a distance. He had to do everything that, that was required of him as a soldier as a, uh, a, a man of war from a distance from the rest of his troops from the fear that he would, he would give them the disease too. And so we read this story and oftentimes the focus is on Naaman. And by the way, uh, Naaman goes to Elisha. Elisha tells Naaman to go and dip in the Jordan River seven times. And when he dips in the river seven times, he would be cured. And Naaman was furious at this this thing because it was un, it was you know below his station, it was an undignified thing for him to have to do to to dip himself in a river, especially the Jordan River. It wasn't a clean river. It wasn't a nice river to take a swim in. Uh, it was considered to be very dirty water. And 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 Naaman was was you know the whole thing was just annoying to him, but he did it. And 
the end of the story was he, he came out of the water on the seventh time, clean, healed of his leprosy. And uh, so the story goes on, and Naaman goes home and is happily le lives happily ever after to fight another day. But there's often a character in the story that's overlooked. Um, almost her, her name is not known to us. We don't, we don't know who she is. We don't know her backstory, except for what the Bible tells us. Naaman was the, was the commander of the army, but there was this little girl in the story who was there and was just kind of mentioned briefly, and then the story moves on without her. We never hear what happened to her after the point or after the fact, but, but just this little point of the story when she plays a pivotal role in Naaman's life. Naaman was the, the commander of the Syrian army. The Syrian army were not believers in God. They were pagans. They, they were actually most of the time seen as Israel's enemies, and they would often take raids on the, on the land, and there was this, always this back and forth between the Assyrians and the, the Israelites, and um, sometimes when the Israelites were living for God, the Syrians were defeated, and then when the Israelites were not living for God, the Assyrians were, were successful in their raid. Naaman was the commander of the entire army. He was a great man, the Bible says, and God had given him favor because of the, the way the land of Israel was rolling. The, the people of Israel were not living for God, so God's favor rested on Naaman to perhaps execute a little bit of judgment on Israel and, and get Israel's attention so that they would turn their hearts back to God. But during one of these raids, a little maid is captured by, by the army and brought back to Syria. They take a raid on the land of Israel. No doubt this little girl's parents were either killed or enslaved themselves. And, and not very often are slaves brought in as siblings or family relations. They're often divided and split up and, and uh, forced to serve alone in their own right without the, the comforts of their family close by. The way the language is written in the Hebrew, the, the word little, the way it's describing this girl, comes from the word katan, which basically means youngest, insignificant, smallest, or unimportant. So uh, at the very oldest, this girl would be around 11 years old, anywhere between 7 and 11 years old. She's, she's captured from her homeland. Her family is either killed or enslaved themselves and brought back to a foreign land. And this young maiden, who's not even given the dignity of a name in the Bible, is pivotal in the life of Naaman the leper. We don't know her name. We, we know something about her upbringing, however. We, we know a, little, a few things. A few details slip out in the scripture, enough just to give you a clue. 2 Kings 5 and verse 3, when she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. It's funny to me because this little girl who's captive in a foreign land knows more than the king of Israel does. 
When, when, when the king heard, when all this news trickled down to the king of Syria, he writes a letter to the king of Israel and he says, would you heal my servant Naaman? And the, and the king of Israel loses his top, rips his clothes, which is a sign of mourning and great grief. If, if anybody ripped their clothing, clothing's very expensive. It was, it was a sign that your life was bitterly coming to an end. It was, it was the most dramatic sign of sadness and sorrow you could ever do was to rip your clothes. And for a king to do this, it would, it would signal to the whole nation that it was time for them to rip their own clothes. If the king was doing it, they needed to do it too because literally the world was coming to an end. The sky was falling. But, but it's funny, the king throws his, you know, rips his garments, throws ash on his head, and is just having this big to-do saying, the king of Syria is trying to trap me. Who does he think I am? Am I God that I can cure somebody? Isn't it funny? The king didn't even know enough to go, oh, yeah, well, just head down to Elisha's house. He can heal you. Go down to Samaria, see the prophet there. But this little 7 to 11-year-old girl, knows more than the king of Israel. So her, her upbringing was enough that she respected and revered the man of God, knowing even at the, at the least that God worked through this man, and if, if you needed something, you could go see him, and, and he would pray for you, and something would happen in your life. But why, why focus on the, the little girl? If the Bible doesn't make a big deal about her, why even, Pastor, why, why preach a message about this little girl? Because she serves as a great example for us today. While the story focuses on Naaman and, and his healing and God doing a miracle through Elisha, there is a the small detail, enough detail about this girl that turns someone who is rather insignificant into a very pivotal point in somebody's life. And notice it wasn't her wealth that made her important. It wasn't her her, her position that made her important. She isn't even named or mentioned after the story is completed. But she is dramatically involved in the healing of her enemy. She's dramatically involved in the healing of someone who is, for all intents and purposes, her enemy. What makes someone who is plain and insignificant of great value? What, what is it about somebody who's not even named, who's not even, we don't get her history, we don't get her lineage, we don't even know what tribe she's from in Israel. We don't know her posterity. We don't know if she ever got married and had kids and, and educated them to serve the Lord. And who knows, maybe one of her children eventually became a great man or a great woman of God. We don't know. We don't know any of these details. Yet the Bible spends enough time about her to mention her in this story. Someone who is insignificant in the story, yet plays a very important role in the life of Naaman. What was it about her that made her so special? What was it about her that made her insignificance a pivotal moment in the healing of a, of a pagan's life? It was the words that she spoke about the Lord. It was the message that she conveyed to someone who needed to hear it. See, your value in life is not dependent on your education. And I'm not saying education isn't valuable. 
But it doesn't determine your value. It doesn't determine your value. The decisions you make every day don't determine your value. The, 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 the money you accrue in your bank account doesn't make you better or worse. The trips you take in life don't make you more successful. The, the, the earnings you make in life don't make you a better person. You can make the most money in the world, have all the riches and have all the cars and have all the fame and all the acclaim and still be someone who is seeking value and worth in meaningless things. Notice the people that God used, often in Scripture, are not the most educated. Sometimes they are. Paul was a very educated man. But, but off, more often than not, God chose to use those who didn't have enough. And he became their enough. The Bible records people like widows and highlights stories of, of, of women who, who, who are kind of passed over by society. We read of people like Rahab the prostitute. You know, it's interesting, the Bible calls her Rahab the prostitute from the Old Testament right through to the New Testament. She's mentioned not for her successes, but from where she came from. Because the Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that that God is interested in using people regardless of their profession, regardless of their backstory, regardless of their upbringing, regardless of the choices they made at one point in time. God can still use and minister through and make something significant out of what the world might consider something to be very invaluable or insignificant. See, what makes you the most valuable in life is the knowledge of the word of God that you possess. Your, 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 your ability to read and study and understand God's word makes you someone of tremendous value to God. In God's economy, money is the least valuable thing. In God's economy, wealth and property and cars and, and accolades and fame, it, it falls on the line of value, but it is at the very bottom of value. The thing that is of highest value in God's economy is the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus said it like this, what would it profit you to gain the whole world but lose your soul? I'm not going to deceive you this morning. You can find what you are looking for in the world. You can. Jesus said it. You can gain the whole world. You, even if it's possible, you can find the, the community you want in this world. You will find it. You will find community in this world that will fill a void in your life. It will fill that void for a time. You can find meaning in pursuing a life of sin and pleasure. You can find it. It's out there. You can find it. You can spend years and years finding the meaning. But at the end of the day, Jesus said you can gain the entire world. You can go from success to success and live the best life in this entire world. But if at the end of all of that you lose your soul, you have actually gained nothing. You have actually gained nothing. Uh, sometimes in churches 
are guilty of, of downplaying the pleasure of sin or only talking about the negative things. And by the way, there are a lot of negative consequences to sin. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. There's lots. In fact, mo most sin can be deterred if you, if you understand where, where the end of that path is going to be. But, but I won't lie to you and tell you that you won't have fun out there while you're doing it. You will. You'll have lots of fun. It'll be great for a long time. I was listening to a testimony of a man who lived in Los Angeles. A homosexual man living in Los Angeles as a fashion designer, set designer for some of the greatest brands in fashion. His name is Beckett Cook. Great, great testimony. And he said he lived this life of party, party, party. And it took him 10 years to finally realize it was empty. But he was, he's amazed now. He says, I really, I lived in it and was entrenched in it for over 10 years. And never once questioned it until I had reached the very end of my rope. And wasn't finding the meaning in life that, that these things were promising me. And God was able to rescue him from that life. And he's now living for God, preaching the gospel, trying to spread the news that Jesus can change your life no matter where you come from or what you were involved with. But, but the truth is the world is full of pleasure that can keep you busy. And he said that's what it was. The thing that kept me from realizing my station was I was just busy. Everything kept me going and going and going and going until I finally burnt out. By the grace of God, he burnt out and was able to stop for a few minutes and start to ask himself some questions. But see, this world will fill you. It will satisfy you for a time. And, and, and it might even satisfy you right to the end of your life. But if at the end of your life, you have nothing eternal to show for your life. And all of eternity is affected by your choices that you made. You have gained the entire world, but you have lost your soul. I might paint a different picture. I might paint a picture of someone who, who does not gain the entire world. You spend your life perhaps living in, in uh, you know, mediocre type jobs that, don't, that pay enough to get you by and you have enough to, to give and you might even have enough to make you somewhat comfortable as far as a, a, a wealth is concerned. And you, you may not have a lot, but you always have enough. But you are rich in your knowledge of the Word of God. You're rich in your experiences with God. You may even be blessed to have a few things of possession from this world. At the end of your life, if you can gain your soul, but you didn't gain everything you were looking, there were still items on your bucket list. You never got to go skydiving like you really wanted to. You never got to zip line over the, the Costa Rican jungle. You know, you never saw those, those ads on Facebook and Instagram that pop up and tell you your next dream vacation. And you look at that and you say, well, that'd be nice. But you never made it. If at the end of your life, you never made it. You never lived in a penthouse. Maybe you never uh, worked for a, a, a big company or, or maybe even achieved the degree or the, the, the lifestyle that you were looking for. But your life was filled with the work of the kingdom of God. And you made an eternal difference on the lives of many people. Jesus would look at you and say, you are better off than Elon Musk and everybody out there who has 
has everything and owns Amazon and, and has traveled to space on a luxury cruise liner in, in, in the sky. You, you have more than all of those things put together because you gained your soul. If I could convey to anybody, especially the young people who you're at this critical stage of, of education and you're in that, that place of where the guidance counselors are constantly asking you, what do you want to do with your life? And every time you go to a family party or gathering, the first question all of the old people ask is, what are you doing with the rest of your life? And you want to just look at them and, get, and say, I just want to eat turkey here, right? I, I, just, I came here to have a party, not give you a report on my guidance for the rest of my life. Would you please leave me alone? I don't know, right? Can I just... Speak with the frustration you so desire to express, but you know it would be rude to do so. <laughs> Don't let your pursuit, and these are real questions you have to answer, yes, and they're difficult to tell. You'll, you'll make a good decision in the end. But can I convey to you that in all of your pursuit, if you lose your soul in the pursuit of these things, you lose everything. If, if there's one thing, one decision you need to make today for the rest of your life, it's I'm going to live the way God wants me to live. I'm going to allow Him to order my steps. Then, then it, to, can I just be frank? It doesn't matter if you become a doctor or a janitor. It doesn't matter if you become a technician or if you become an engineer. It doesn't really matter what you do with your life if you're working to seek first what God wants for your life and no matter what profession you're in you're a Christian first see the world wants us to be identified by all kinds of things they want us to be identified by our profession they want us to be identified by how much money we make they even want us to be identified by our gender or our our preferences in in who we love or who we want to spend the rest of our life with but the Bible makes it very clear that our identity is not grounded in any of these things they're temporal they're temporary my identity needs to be based in Jesus Christ and his will for my life and when I put that first Jesus said everything else will be added unto me if I seek first God's will and doing what's right in God's eyes everything I want will be added unto me read the, the, the Sermon on the Mount Matthews chapters 5 through 7 for reference but that's what Jesus preached Seek first the king. That's what adds value to your life. I would dare say that that's what got this girl recorded in the pages of Scripture. Maybe her name wasn't listed there, but she was the pivotal point for Naaman's life. Naaman owed his, his healing. Yes, in part to Elisha who preached the word. But in the most of, of, of the credit for Naaman's healing should go to that little girl. If there was anybody who had the right to clam up and watch Naaman suffer a slow death for the rest of his life, it was her. If there was anybody that had the right to say, well, you separated me from my mom and dad. I'm seven years old and I don't have a mom 
to care for me when I scrape my knee. You, you separated me and now forced me into child labor for a woman I don't know. You're going to force me to live this way for the rest of my life in a land I don't know, away from the temple that I do know, and I cannot even pray like I used to to the God that I loved. I'm going to watch you suffer. I'm going to allow the bitterness of this disappointment and this hard knock that life has brought to my life. I'm going to let that to embitter me, and I will... I'm I'm glad to watch you suffer with this disease. You can't touch your wife. You can't enjoy your life. You cannot enjoy your, your work. You have to work from a distance with everybody. Nobody can get close to you. Naaman, I'm going to enjoy watching you suffer for the next few years. But what did this little girl say to her mistress? Would that my master, my Lord, lived in Israel? I wish, she said to her master's wife, I wish that he was near the prophet in Samaria because he would cure him of this leprosy. Something about her faith, something about her outlook on life, that she even could see those who had taken her away from everything and have compassion on them. This is what made this little girl great in this story. It wasn't the fact that she had a position of influence. She didn't. But she had a heart that, that reached the master who had enslaved her. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says, We have this treasure in jars of clay. To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Had this little maid thought about her situation and held resentment in her heart, she would have never shared this information with Naaman. But it wasn't the situation, but the message inside of her that could not be contained. Her, she didn't allow her situation to shut out the light that was inside of her. She carried light inside of her. She carried hope inside of her. Despite the darkness of her own life and situation, the, dark, the, the darkness could not quench the light that was on the inside. I'm here to let you know this morning, it doesn't really matter how good you, you make it. You are never going to make the perfect decision. You are never going to make the perfect decision in life. You're always going to make a bad decision somewhere. In fact, if you don't make bad decisions, you're never going to actually learn how to make good ones. Bad decisions are how you learn to make good decisions. And so you're, God's not looking for someone to be perfect, flawless. God's looking for someone who is willing to be moldable and pliable in his life. Now, this doesn't mean you, you don't have to worry about living holy and strive for for righteousness and holiness, yes, that, that's, that's where we're headed. That's the direction we're going. But if we fall and trip along the way, that's okay. Don't let suffering stop you from ministering to someone who's broken. See, there's an art to brokenness. And actually, brokenness can turn into an art. There's a unique form of art in the country of Japan Something where they, they, they purposely shatter pottery 
to remake it into something of a new form of art. It's the process called, uh, and I'm not going to say it right, but kintsugi. And most would consider a broken piece of pottery or a vase damaged and useless. If you want to throw up the pictures of the, the pots, they, they take pots that are crafted beautifully. They're, they're, they're fired and they're glazed and they're beautiful pots and they, they smash them. And then they take the glue that puts these things together and they mix it with gold dust. And they, 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 they take gold, grind it really, really fine and mix it with the glue and glue the pot back together. It fuses, the lacquer and the gold fuses together to create a bond that is stronger than the original pot was before it was broken. On top of that, they're able to make some of the most beautiful pottery art. And what is highlighted in the art is the brokenness of the pot. The pot was just another pot before it was broken. But after it was broken and fused together, it becomes more valuable and more precious than when it was on its own. For me, this is a beautiful image of what a Christian's life is all about. We all come to God broken in our various ways. We come to God with pieces missing. And God fuses those things back together, and the thing that holds it together is Him. The gold in the cracks. He makes up the difference where we lack. He, he uses us not for our capacity, not for our ability, but for our lack thereof because he's able to put the pieces back together and make it something more precious than it was before. Psalms 34 and 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth as such as be a, of a contrite spirit. I, I, would, I would venture to say this morning, that Naaman's miracle would have been virtually impossible if it was not for the brokenness of a 7 to 11 year old little girl who was removed from her home and her family at a young age for, for no reason other than the fact that she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And this, this, this little girl's light, the, the brokenness of her light led to the healing of her enemy. God can use your brokenness. God can use whatever. Don't be afraid to make a bad decision because I'm here to let you know that if God can use the bad decisions of others to bring healing to Naaman, God can even use your bad decisions and your brokenness and your messed up life and your things that you thought never could ever fit back together. God can put those things back together in a way that will bring glory to him. Sister Bryson, if you'd come. We're going to stand this morning, and we're going to pray, and we're going to bring our brokenness to God. I don't know what you're dealing with this morning, broken dreams or broken heart, broken relationship. Maybe, maybe you're just afraid of launching out because you're afraid of being broken. I don't know where you're at or what you're dealing with this morning, but if you're a human in the building, you probably have some level of brokenness in your life. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be ashamed of it. But bring it to Jesus. God can cause light to shine out of the darkest 
things of your life. The darkest memories, the darkest moments, God can allow a speck of light to shine out of those things. The Bible tells us that God is the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe that God is not only present in all places, but I believe God is present at all times. He's present. He's the I am that I am. He's the, the one who was, who is, and is to come. He is in the past. He's in the present. And he's in the future. The remarkable thing about that is, while you can't go back and change your past, I believe God, who is present in your past, can apply healing to your past, in the past, so that it affects your present and your future. That's why, that's why a relationship with God is so powerful, because He's able to heal you, not just today, but he's able to heal you yesterday. You're able to bring your brokenness to him today, and he can step into your yesterday and bring wholeness to that thing yesterday that is affecting your today. Now, this might be all very mystical and metaphoric in our minds, but God is able to do great things. He's able to fuse the broken pieces together with himself. And bring healing. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have work to do today and things, maybe behaviors you need to change today and tomorrow. But God is able to step into your yesterday and heal your today. Would you bring him your brokenness? Would you come to this altar, this, this front area of prayer and maybe find someone to pray with, a, a friend or family or somebody that you can pray with and seek for healing and seek for deliverance and, and ask God, take the broken pieces, God, and put them back together. Take, take the parts that are fragmented and fractured and would you, would you stick them back together? Would you bring healing to the parts that are broken? Would you bring light to the parts that are dark? Would you heal the things that are hurting? So, Lord, you can move and use us in a way we've never been used or healed or touched before. Like the little girl who was instrumental in the healing of someone who was her enemy. God, let me be an instrument of healing in somebody else's life. Hallelujah, Jesus. Touch you like Jesus can. No one can give you peace you cannot understand. No one can bind your wounds with nail-scarred hands. No one can touch you like Jesus can. Where we are, just reach out to the Lord and bring him your brokenness this morning. No one can touch you like 